Good morning, beloved. What if all of your dreams came true and you harnessed all of your greatest strengths and all of your hard work paid off, doing something so well that it made a name for yourself, where your name is known, your resume is revered, almost hallowed, if all of your dreams came true, how hallowed would God's name be? Who would people leave your presence most impressed with? Could people still think highly of you and little of God if all of your dreams came true? Maybe you're done with dreams. You think more about what could have been than what could be. You had what it took to make a name for yourself, but you find yourself left unappreciated in spite of all your talents. What is the value of making a name for ourselves? How much should we desire it? And if we achieve it, how should we desire that it happen? And if it doesn't happen, what do we lose? And if it does happen, what do we gain? When all that's left of our name is an unvisited tombstone and a paragraph-long obituary in a newspaper nobody reads anymore, What's the value in a name? Let us pray that God would open our eyes to the truth of how to live in a world full of men and women trying to make a name for themselves. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are, we are dull people, people like who can't grasp um, the value of who you are without your help, Father. So please open your, our eyes now um, that we may worship you, that our eyes may shift from ourselves to you. Um, we can't do it without you, Father. Please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Before walking through today's sermon text, we're going to glance at one verse to help us understand the context. You'll find it easiest to listen to this sermon if you have a Bible or Bible app open in front of you because I'm going to ask you to examine verses for yourself. Last week, Jake taught us about Noah and the great flood. After God preserves Noah's family on the ark, one of the commands God gives to Noah we see in Genesis 9-1. It reads, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Flip with me now, two chapters later, to Genesis 11. And follow along as I read verses 1 to 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Do you see why we read Genesis 9-1 before diving into this story? If you're taking notes, the first scene of this text displays this, the heart behind rebellion. God blesses Noah and his sons and says to them, fill the earth, enjoy my good creation, have babies, and trust me that following the loving instruction of your genius designer will be for your good and far better than what you'll come up with on your own. But God's plan is a problem to Noah's offspring. So they reject God's blessing and defy his command. Why? What do the hearts of these people desire that dispersion threatens? Look again with me at verse 4. Then they said, Come, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. Their problem with God's plan goes deeper than dispersion. They're not just extroverts who can't imagine living life without a crowd and think God is a tyrant for asking them to spread out some. If that was the case then the rebellion would only consist of building a city for themselves. But they want more. They want a tower with its top in the heavens and a name for themselves. They want glory. The real fear and dispersion is the inability to make a name for themselves. Less people around to build means smaller cities and shorter towers and less glorying in their own achievements. And these ancient engineers had real talent from God. In verse 3, we see their ability to craft bricks and attach them to one another. And they're so good at it, they engineer a whole city with a tower and a tower with its top in the heavens. Through their work, they were actually displaying part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God is creator. And these image bearers were cultivating God's creation to create impressive architecture. But they used gifts God gave them to rebel against him. Forget God. We don't need him. Look at what we can do without him. All you have to do is look up and see our tower piercing the clouds to be reminded of our greatness. What is the chief end of man, you ask? Man's chief end is to glorify ourselves and enjoy ourselves forever. What shall God God do about humanity's rebellion? We move from the heart behind rebellion in scene one to scene two, God's treatment of rebellion. Read with me verses five to seven. 
And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Why does the Lord confuse their language? Verse 6 gives us our answer. He does so because their language was the reason that nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. Impossible how? In what way will nothing be impossible for them? Well, God says this after coming down and seeing the city and tower they had just made. He's talking about what he's seeing. So in context, verse 6 means nothing that they propose to build will now be impossible for them. And they will continue to make an even better name for themselves. They would have if it wasn't for the fact that nothing that God proposes to do is ever impossible for him. The God who, verse 5 says, still needed to come down to see their little tower. Remember the wording of what the people wanted to avoid in verse 4. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now read with me verses 8 and 9. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. They make a name for themselves in vain. The very thing the people fear, the Lord makes happen, despite their best efforts. The rest of Genesis 11 chronicles the descendants of Noah's son Shem, through whose line would come a man named Abram. And after reading this story about people making a name for themselves, the way God calls Abram is eye-opening. Skim down with me to Genesis chapter 12 and read with me verses 1 to 3. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises to make a way for all the families of the earth to be blessed, in spite of the rebellion against him. And he will do so by making Abram's name great himself, not by Abram making his name great. This is an important warning for the original audience of Genesis to heed. Moses writes this for the Israelites as they prepare to enter the promised land. This story gives them a preview of what would happen if they enter the promised land, forget who got them there, and disobey God. They would be scattered 
And tragically, that's exactly what happened. Israel rebelled against God, and God raised up an enemy nation to scatter them. As the curtains close on scene two, God's treatment of rebellion, what shall come of humanity? We watch scene three unfold throughout the rest of the Bible. God would reverse Babel. That's what God promises through the prophet Zephaniah. God says, after he judges Israel, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. We needed a humble and lowly Savior to reverse Babel. We needed a Savior who would not make a name for himself, but seek his Father's glory. A Savior who, rather than climb a a tower up to the heavens, would come down from heaven. As mankind continued to try to be God, the Son of God became man. Christ Jesus, the God-man, came proclaiming a message of repentance, warning crowds, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And he practiced what he preached. The same God who dispersed Babel prayed to his Father in the shadow of the cross, not my will, but yours be done. And because he submitted to his Father's will, to the point of death, and because he put his exaltation in his Father's hands, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In order to reverse Babel, and unite all nations in him, Christ needed to walk humbly with his God so that he would be a worthy sacrifice to pay for the sins of the proud. Christ needed to walk humbly so that he might credit his humility to the account of the proud who would believe in him. The proud cannot stand before a holy God Only the humble can, but all who trust in Christ alone to reconcile them to God are united to Christ, washed clean of their pride, and clothed with his humility, so that when we stand before God on judgment day, he'll see a humble man or woman wearing Christ's humility. It is Christ's humble life humiliating death and death-defeating resurrection that enables him to reverse Babel and fulfill God's promise to Abraham that in you shall all the nations be blessed. The Apostle John sees a vision of the fulfillment of God's plan in Revelation. From heaven, he hears the song, Worthy are you, for you were slain 
And by your blood, you ransom people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation who are seen in Revelation crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What Babel meant for evil, God meant for glory. He judged the people by confusing their language and dispersing them, leading to the creation of many nations with many languages. But God had a plan to display his glory that transcends every tribe and language and people and nation and unites them all in Christ Jesus to the praise of his glory. Christians live by faith and not by sight. However, nearly 2,000 years removed from Christ's commission to make disciples of all nations, and nearly 2,000 years removed from Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit enables believers to speak in other languages, sparking the spread of the gospel to every nation under heaven. Nearly 2,000 years and over 6,000 miles removed from those events, you don't have to search far for sight of Christ's power actively uniting all nations in him. In light of all of this, how then should we live? Two points of application. One, humble yourselves before God scatters you. The story of the Tower of Babel is not one about an especially narcissistic people who would rather make a name for themselves rather than obey God. But like the first 10 chapters of Genesis, this is a story about the heart of all humanity. We all want to make a name for ourselves. Genesis 11 records that the whole earth collectively said, let us make a name for ourselves. A desire to bow to the same false god of self-exaltation dwells in each of us. How we desire to make a name for ourselves will just look different. A few of us may have jobs, talents, or education that society looks up to, who are surrounded all the time by brilliant people who are trying to make a name for themselves. And you're constantly bombarded by voices from the world. Sacrifice your relationship with your family and your church and your God on the altar of making a name for yourself that will last forever. Some of us may hear those voices and grieve that we aren't even able to do that. We're not working in the field we went to school for. We have gifts God just hasn't opened up doors for us to use. Or we're older and looking back on a life lived anonymously. And our greatest temptation is to grumble about the name God kept from us. Or you're young. And all you have is dreams. And your whole life is headed in one direction of trying to find significance in doing something well. What towers are you attempting to build? 
What reputation would you like to have for yourself or for your family? And as we chase those reputations, will, where is the will of God in our considerations? For me, I'm tempted to preach in a way that makes a name for God and me. And after service, I'll be tempted to receive the praises of people who say they appreciated the sermon, even though all praise is due to God for any true change in anyone's hearts. Or, if no one thanks me for preaching, I'll face temptation to be bitter, even though I'm called to preach for the approval of God alone. Are you trying to make a name for yourself through Christian service? Most wise elder, most active member, most sacrificial servant. We must remember as we serve that we are not the Christ. A 12th century church leader said, if because of the good works we perform, we desire to be loved by the church rather than by Christ, we are enemies to our Redeemer. Indeed, servants are guilty of adulterous thought if we crave to please the eyes of the bride when the bridegroom sends gifts to the bride through us. Lord, have mercy on us for craving to draw the eyes of Christ's bride from him to ourselves. 1 Peter 5 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. Our motivation to humble ourselves is not only a healthy fear that God opposes the proud and scatters us, but also that God promises exaltation to those who humble themselves. After Christ Jesus comes back and scatters those who have made a name for themselves, he will exalt the humble infinitely higher than they could have ever exalted themselves. The humble humble themselves, anticipating God to exalt them. And that's no sin, because God's the one doing the exalting not you. God is the one we're dependent on for exaltation, not ourselves. Beloved, free yourself from the rat race of trying to make a name for yourself. Humbly replant of your pride and have faith that God will not only forgive your sin and clothe you in Christ's righteous humility, but that he will also at the proper time exalt you. Romans 8 tells us the children of God are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs of the one who is appointed heir of all things. If we endure humbly, we will also reign with him. What good is a name among men on earth when you can reign with Christ forever? 
Application number two, trust that God will make a name for himself in all the earth. Do you ever doubt God when you look around and see some of the most intelligent, most talented, and most put-together people living as if God is irrelevant, maybe even living as if God is a fairy tale, and they're fine, they're wealthy, they're seemingly happy, they have more about themselves to boast in than you do. Does this challenge your faith? Make note that the citizens of Babel succeeded in making a name for themselves. They succeeded in building themselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They didn't just plan to do these things. Genesis 11.5 says God came down to see the city and tower they had actually successfully built. And it's safe to assume they didn't build a tower with its top in the heavens overnight with primitive technology. Who knows how many years it would have taken them to build their metropolis and boast in their metropolis. For years, they likely, as their tower inched toward the skies, it would have been an ever-visible monument that served as evidence to them that they didn't need God and only their name was worthy of praise. Wait for it. Christ Jesus is coming back to judge the nations. No matter how many reasons deniers of God have today to boast in themselves and mock believers, wait for it. The God who is sovereign over human language and has the ability to scatter a people simply by confusing their speech will not have to put up a fight to send the proud scrambling on judgment day. The Tower of Babel and their city provided no defense. Every knee will bow in humility or humiliation. Every tongue will confess in joy or fear that Jesus Christ is Lord. And at that moment, what will be the value of a name we made for ourselves? What can a name do for us as we kneel before the name that is above every name? We make a name for ourselves in vain. The very thing Babel wanted to avoid happened because they opposed God's will, and he runs the world, not us. The world revolves around him, not us. If the Tower of Babel narrative irks us, because why does God have to be jealous for his glory? That's a sign we don't yet grasp who's God and who's not. All glory is due him, Zero is due us. We get to enjoy his glory. That's our role in his world. He gives. We receive. He speaks. 
we listen. He displays. We behold. He rules. We trust. He strengthens. We obey with the strength that he provides. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. His majesty cares for you. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel afresh that your rebellion against God deserves the penalty of death. But God so loved the nations that he sent his son to pay that penalty that whoever humbles themselves, confesses their need for a savior, and receives the free offer of God's grace in Christ, whosoever believes in him and not themselves has eternal life. And this is eternal life, that we know God and enjoy God and be with God forever. In the name of Christ Jesus we glory. In the name of Christ Jesus we're saved. In the name of Christ Jesus we're empowered to kill our sinful pride and live to make his name known. Because his spirit made us alive. We're no longer slaves to pride. The spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, uniting us to the Lord of lords so that we may live by faith in him and not ourselves. And everything we ever wanted, all the praise we ever chased, we count as garbage because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. They can have a name for now. I'll take Christ as mine forever. Let's proclaim the gospel. Die and be forgotten joyfully because his name is our treasure. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. Soon he's coming back to welcome me, far beyond the starry sky. I shall wing my flight to worlds unknown. I shall reign with him on high. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you us finite beings cannot comprehend um, the riches we have in Christ, um, the promise that we have to reign with him forever. Oh Lord, open our eyes to your word. Um, satisfy us in you. Um, may, we, may we live for your name. May the idea of living for our name, we see, may we see it as the foolishness that it is, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.